Father Harrison. Father Anthony. I have been a priest for three whole years. Woo-hoo! Happy anniversary. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. How did you spend it? Well, uh, basically, my anniversary was Tuesday, and I kind of, I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. I just had a really good holy hour, mm-hmm. and then I celebrated Mass. Yep. For myself, which yep. was nice. Yep. The did prayers you, for the anniversary yeah. of a priest, they were really neat. They are neat, yeah. Yeah. And uh, that was about it. But the past uh, weekend was kind of like the celebration because that past weekend, I was in Hartford, Connecticut for mm-hmm. a good friend of mine, now Father Anthony Federico, his ordination. Home of the now defunct Hartford Whalers from the NHL. Oh, yeah. I don't know about this. Okay. Though I did see well, some Hartford Whaler gear. I didn't know what, <laughs> what, what what team they were, what kind of sports they did. It's kind of hard. To, yeah. I'm always like Hartford, Connecticut seems like the last place to have a hockey team. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, but okay. do you know what they do have? What? Clam pizza. Yeah, that was weird. It's delicious. It's basically it's basically just like olive oil, garlic, and clams on a pizza. See, I hate clams. Oh, uh, yeah. So, but it was good? Yeah, it was great. It was great to hang out with everybody. Um, yeah. It's amazing because, um, you know, three years out of seminary feels like forever out of seminary. Yeah. And uh, there's more guys who are ordained. There's other guys who are still in seminary. But it's nice to, to meet with all of them, hang out with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anthony's uh, family, they're great. A bunch of guidos just like me. So um, it was fun <laughs> hanging out with them. Uh, but I was several times, several times. This is especially, this was coming from Father Michael Bainham, who's on Twitter. Whenever I would bring up like a good theological point, because we would either talk, banter about stuff, or yep. we're talking with other like lay people there, and they're like, "Oh, there's a bunch of priests. Let's ask them questions." So never I would bring up a good point, like all my friends <laughs> would like stop what they're doing and like look at me with this like kind of like surprised, confused look. And Father Harrison, it really hurt my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> Why were they surprised? Well, I mean, I was kind of a goofball in seminary, like yeah. no surprises. Um, you know, TC, it's a very academic-minded culture there. And a lot of times when guys were having discussions, I would just kind of sit back and listen. Because like just like the energy with which they approach the discussions, um, I just rather listen than like throw in my two cents. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think they were kind of just surprised that I actually know some things. Didn't I see you tweet something like this? Like I did tweet something like this. Like you said something like about like reading books now or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, so Father Michael Bainham was like, "Oh, uh, something like, oh, did you start reading books after you were ordained?" <laughs> and then someone else tweeted, "Well, you can learn a lot by listening to Father Harrison." And once again, <laughs> wounded, wounded, my pride shattered and cast to the ground. But you know, those times are always great, right? Because. You, I mean, how often do you get a chance to hang out with your classmates when it's a regional seminary? Right, uh, exactly. Right? Yeah. Or, or like a, a yeah, um, it's really hard to see them. And you may, you may talk on the phone once in a while. You can text each other. But to actually hang out, it's really rare. But it's also really cool because it's like you, you never stop seeing each other. Yeah. Like it, you just kind of kick off from when you last were together. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It was super natural, super easy. We were, you know, yeah. just catching up on what your assignment is. And I loved, I loved everyone's expression. When I told them I was assigned to seven different parishes, <laughs> the shock and horror on their faces brought yeah. some kind of like joy to me. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's true because not everyone can have a podcast with their priest friends. Only the coolest can do that. Exactly. So welcome to Clerically Speaking. Woo-hoo! The coolest podcast. The coolest podcast with priests. Yeah. Yeah. You know it's true. You That's can tell right. those other guys, they're not as cool as us. Anyway, I'm Father yeah. Anthony. And I'm Father Harrison. Uh, 
it, this is actually going to be a nice little preamble for later on what we're going to discuss. But this past Sunday was Corpus Christi Sunday. Oh, yeah, it was. And so I've been planning like a madman to bump it up a notch. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did something as parish has never done before. A Eucharistic procession. Ooh. Yeah. So I, we didn't go far. We just went uh, kind of about a two block radius walk around. Mm-hmm. Went down to the main street so that, you know, the cars could see us and everything. And we're singing, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Then I had a huge barbecue afterwards. Oh, nice. Had hamburgers and hot dogs and everything. The weather, was, it didn't rain, but it was kind of cloudy. So we had we ended up holding the reception in the basement, which was probably easier organizationally anyways. Uh, but it was really cool. And, and it was I did this on purpose because I wanted people to understand that when we have major festivities in the church, we feast. Yeah, absolutely. That will play into what we talk about later. That's yeah. very, very good. Well, this is all, all of this comes from reading what mm. we're going to talk about later. So yeah. anyways, uh, but it was really, and for me, this is the highlight of it all was first, I've already had people say, can we do this next year? Like, can we add to this next year? I'm like, absolutely. I went really simple this year because it was essentially all on my shoulders. I didn't have a whole lot of help right. initially, so I didn't want to overdo it, overextend myself. But at the the other cool thing was um, all these people were saying it was so neat to witness to my faith publicly like that. Right. I'm like, yes. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the whole point. Yeah. Like, you, you might have these different experiences of this event that you may not have even ever been conscious of. Mm-hmm. And I've had so many people say, wow, that was just such a neat thing to have, like, the barbecue afterwards, have so many people come together. New pr- parishioners were meeting each other that they hadn't met each other before, mm-hmm. and it was just an awesome little success. I overbought on food, though, so I have, like, another 150 hamburgers and hot hamburger buns <laughs> in the freezer. So we're going to do a little mini celebration for the Assumption in August. Okay, that I, I need to use up the food. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what's funny? Because I never – I didn't even know about – Eucharistic processions until I was in seminary. It was not something I grew up with, like, at all. No, I mean, I didn't really grow up going to church. I did one, our diocese, like, we did one at our cathedral years and years ago for Corpus Christi, Just one, and, we, and we got, like, permits to block off the streets and everything. Like, mm-hmm. it was really cool. But that was the only, and I, I was thurifer. I wasn't even in seminary yet, but I was a thurifer for that. That was really awesome. It is fun to carry the smoke, yeah. But I don't know if you noticed this, like, uh, it seems like just like looking on Twitter, it seems to be growing as a phenomenon again. Yeah, it's true. I'm not sure if it's just because I'm on Twitter and then you get to a little bit of a wider scope of the world, but it did right. seem like a lot of people were talking about the Eucharistic processions that they did. So that was encouraging. And seeing priests, yeah, this is my first year doing or it's our second year. Right. So mm-hmm. it seems to just be kind of like these little traditions again seem to kind of be growing. And it's kind of awesome. No, it definitely is. Awesome. Yeah. We had an Italian festival at my old parish. Actually, it wasn't the parish. The city was doing an Italian festival. And yeah. so they called up the parish and said, hey, do you want to do like a procession? And so like for them, it was kind of like, oh, this is an event that happens at an Italian festival because all Italians are Catholic. You should have a Eucharistic yep. procession. And yep. so part of that bothered me a little bit. But I was like, why not? Let's just do it. Let's just do it. Yep. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's funny because more than anything else. The expression, people are shocked when they see a Eucharist because yeah. it's so different than anything else in the world. It's not like any other kind of parade. It's not like any other kind of public event. You see priests holding the monstrance. You hear mm-hmm. people praying. You see the smoke. And it's so weird to our culture to see something religious like out in the open. It's mm-hmm. not a protest. We're not, mm-hmm. you know, it's nothing like that. If we're chanting, yeah. it's in song, not in like just stupid chants and stuff. And it just, 
it really blows people's minds. Uh, yeah. And for the most part, I'm like, um, I didn't get any sort of negative reaction when I did it. It's more, mm -hmm. it's more just shock, I think, from people. And mm -hmm. I also had the same response from the parishioners. They were super excited, like, oh, can we do this again next year? Because it is this kind of, it's just different. It's, people don't get the chance to be Catholic out in public very often. Exactly. If they do, they do it by themselves, and that's scary for them, so they probably don't do it. But this chance to be with a group, it's almost a little bit of a safety thing as well, I think. It helps Absolutely. them. Yeah. Uh, like, we are different, and yeah. we are bringing, literally bringing Jesus Christ out into the world in the Eucharist. Well, so That yeah. was my, that was kind of my, uh, my Corpus Christi Sunday homily. Mm -hmm. What I reflected on the, you give them something to eat. And so I was kind of going through what that meant, the whole homily. But at the end, I said, that's where we're fulfilling Jesus's command today. We're literally bringing Christ to a hungering world who desires him and wants him. We're bringing him to the streets uh, and then into the hearts of people who don't, who don't know him, but who, know, who need him deeply. Yeah. And if you were singing any sort of hymns or chanting anything in your Corpus Christi procession this past weekend, they mm -hmm. were probably written by St. Thomas Aquinas. And now it's time for the Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. We talk of I liked it. It was good. That was excellent. Yeah, was it good. was the smoothest thing. Well, I, I was like, he's going to either go the food route right. or he's going to go the tantum ergo route. Tantum ergo sacramentum, all these other verses too. We don't know them, only this one, but it's good enough for you. Okay, so <laughs> let's... Um, <laughs> You know, I used to be way when better. When church historians listen to this podcast, <laughs> 200 years. You know, I used to be way better at that because at the end of mass, there'd be a closing hymn and it'd always be stuck in my head. So I yeah. would sing the tune of the closing hymn, but I would sing it about whatever was being served for breakfast. And after four years of that in my minor seminary, I was like really good at singing breakfast hymns. Um, but anyway. Holy waffles, we praise thy name. <laughs> exactly, just like that. Hash browns too, we really love you. <laughs> uh, see, you get it, you get it. Yeah. Alrighty, so the Summa Theologica was St. Thomas Aquinas' summary of theology, and the Summa Tweetologica is our summary of things we found interesting on Twitter. First up, this is from Don Hughes at Get Fiscal. And he says, if you like the idea of all your debts being canceled, check out Christianity. <laughs> I like this because this is a big old debate, especially in America right now, what to do America. about everyone being in debt because of school and stuff. You know, there are presidential candidates saying we're gonna get rid of all your debts and it's a whole there's a lot of energy around it but mm -hmm. the original getting rid of your debts before it was cool 
was Jesus Christ forgiving the, the debt of our sins. So I thought that was a fun little tweet. It, it was definitely really fun. Yeah. Yes. Some people are going, that sounds like a little Protestant soteriology. I'm like, yeah, maybe, but it's still funny. And let's sure, fun right, 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 right. Let's just have some fun. Yeah. Eh, Don's a Canadian. He's a Canadian? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I know. Wow. There's, there's more than one of you up there. Yeah. There's, yes. There's, there's two of us. Ah, yes. There's two of us And now. then all the moose. And I assume geese, I guess. I don't know what's in Canada. Otters, so maybe. I'm going to continue I'm going to continue the the theme of uh fun tweets. Mm-hmm. Uh Joe Fullweiler, uh Jen Fullweiler's husband at Jovial Texas. If I had my wedding to do over again, I would make it would be at 9 a.m. and this would be the first reading. Acts 2:15. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. <laughs> I had no idea that Jen's husband was on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Have you ever been to a, a morning wedding? Uh, the earliest I've been to is 11. I think I've been to, I think I had one that was at 10 o'clock, and they're actually kind of nice. It, it, Jen, Jen replied, she goes, if it was at nine in the morning, then the bride would not have been there because... <laughs> It would take forever for her to get ready. It's true. The bride would wake up at like 2 o'clock in the morning. I know. It's just crazy. It sounds don't exhausting. Go to bed. Yeah. But I thought, what a great play on that scripture mm-hmm. around Pentecost. I'm like, this This is a party wedding. This is going to be a lot of fun. Exactly. These people know how to celebrate and have some fun. <laughs> yeah. So it was just yeah. not a whole lot to say about it. It was just fun. Mm-hmm. I liked it. Okay. Let's, let's get into something that's more heavy. Maybe. Yeah. Let's, it's from Father Patrick Hyde, OP, uh, yeah. uh, at FR Patrick OP. And he says, I've noticed how priests on every side of the spectrum regularly schedule and celebrate two masses on weekdays. Canon law allows this for just causes, for example, funeral, wedding, mass at the nursing home, etc. But is convenience and ease of access to mass a just cause? And the answer, mm-hmm. of course, is convenience and ease is, is not, not a just cause. cause. And this is this yes. is actually prompts a lot of good discussion. Yeah. But there is this thing that's that's been ingrained in a lot of parishes, especially in my area, of priests for a long time kind of bending over backwards and breaking canon law and becoming workaholics just for the ease and convenience of the parishioners mm-hmm. and why i say ease and convenience i don't say you know maybe there's maybe you have an e- sunday evening mass because there's a hospital in your town and a lot of your parishioners they do these 12-hour shifts and they can't mm-hmm. make it in the morning that's mm-hmm. not convenience and ease that's necessity yeah. to give a mass time for your parishioners i'm yeah. talking about having like a four o'clock vigil a five o'clock vigil an yeah. eight ten and twelve the next morning like you don't yeah. need all those or times having just for convenience. two weekday masses oh yeah especially because, yeah two weekday because that's what he was talking more about right was right. weekday mass right yeah so like the idea of having an eight thirty and a 12 o'clock mass on a weekday you don't need that because both of those times are going to serve the same group of people Unless like, you're like, unless you're in a parish where there's multiple priests, right? And it's a sure. large enough parish where they're going to go to different mass times. That's different, right? But it's yeah. this idea like when you have one priest, you're going to get one mass during the week. Yeah, right. Yeah, we. That's why like so here we have we our school has like a school wide mass once a month. Mm-hmm. That's on Tuesdays. So I 
I cancel the Tuesday evening masses yeah. when I do that because I'm like, okay, I get it. Not everyone can come to the school mass when I have it because the working people, because it's, it's usually Tuesday evening. So when it's mass, so I'm like, I get it. But the thing is, I'm not supposed to do more than one mass. And most of the people who would come to mass will come to whatever time it's at. Yeah. So it's, it's just the way it is because, and it's like, I mean, I think, I think we're, again, we're going to be, we're kind of prefacing what we're going to yeah. talk about in a bit. Mm-hmm. But it's this idea. It's like we, yeah, this, where we commodify the sacraments and the mass and the Eucharist and we, uh, we make this workaholism even around the sacraments because they're not meant to be a work in the proper sense. But when you're doing two, three, four masses on a weekday outside of those extraordinary circumstances, obviously, mm-hmm. then like maybe, maybe we're doing it wrong. And the other thing is you weekday mass is a privilege. It's not a right. Poof. I'm just listening to am all I people. wrong? I'm, I was just listening to all the people feeling cranky about what you just said. But am I wrong? I don't know. So people I mean, have a in right the early to the church. I mean, yeah. I mean, like in the early church, uh, they didn't celebrate mass every day. Right. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not. I understand. Listen, there's development of doctrine. I get this. Mm-hmm. But like, like, I remember when I was when I was talking a little bit about you know my my. Uh, some of the added responsibilities I'm getting in my parish and how sometimes I have to, how I want to have adoration when I have to cancel a mass because I have to go to Victoria for a meeting. Mm-hmm. And I had some people really yelling at me mm-hmm. for canceling mass right. during the week for a meeting. And I'm like, well, if I have to go to a meeting, I'm going to the meeting because I need to be on these diocesan things too because we're so short on priests. And so maybe I have to cancel a, a Tuesday mass once in a while or a Wednesday mass once in a while so I can be at those meetings. And it's not to say I'm still saying mass for my I'm still saying mass. I'm gonna say it for my parishioners and stuff. Mm. But what's like it's just the nature like where I think if you want if you want mass every day, all the time, guaranteed, give us more of your sons. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Seriously, I think there that's is, the only that. solution. Absolutely. There is that because it's not essential in the same way that Sunday Mass is. Exactly. It's not obligatory exactly. in that same way. It is a gift. It is is a very nice thing to have and to go mm-hmm. to. But also, it's it's tough because, you know, for example, in an area I've been to before, there was a a morning mass that would have been uh, that it was early mass that workers could have gone to, and it was mm-hmm. not well attended. So I yeah. think sometimes people complaining about this stuff might not actually go. So there's a little bit of that going on too. But okay, this is what I want to talk about because it's yeah. not just saying too many masses and this because we we've cut down on masses because we have so many funerals even though we have you know um four priests we have so many funerals that we had like all of our priests Mm -hmm. uh saying multiple masses a day so we've cut down some of the daily masses to make room for you know the funerals because it's what we had to do and there's already some Mm -hmm. complaints but i you know it's not too long ago that a priest saying mass over and over and over and over and over again multiple times breaking that canon law it destroys his love for the mass mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you've ever like been disappointed by the way your priest says mass it feels like he's just saying it and not praying it it's probably because over the course of years he's broken that law and just yeah. said every single mass for the convenience of the people and it really wears you down uh, i'm not sure if i've talked about this on the podcast or not but fulton sheen 
in uh, The Priest is Not His Own, makes this really good point that when the priest says the words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood, he's speaking in the words of Christ, first mm-hmm. and foremost. Christ mm-hmm. is saying, this is my body, this is my blood. But the priest is also saying those words. He's offering himself on the mm-hmm. altar as well. There is a spiritual sacrifice that goes along with the sacrifice of Christ. Yeah. At the end of Mass, a priest is tired, and not yeah. just because he's been standing up performing, it's because he is offering himself on that altar yeah. along with Christ. And if you don't feel tired after all your Sunday Masses, you're not praying the Mass, plain and simple. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. what does, it really wears down the soul, and it causes scandal to the soul, because yeah. Mass then becomes, for the priest, just a function, just yeah. a work, not a sacrifice, exactly. not a prayer. And then this is how priests over time will lose their love and reverence for the Eucharist. Because you can't give your heart and soul into every Mass if you're saying, uh, if you're breaking canon law every day with the amount that you're saying. It wears down the priests, and then that gets transferred on to the people who don't get to experience the fullness of the Mass because the priest has become a robot Mm -hmm. and not a priest. Yeah. That's why that law is important. Exactly. And... This is why, like, I, I remember uh, when I was talking to parish council around changing, like, we're, we're changing our Christmas Eve mass times. I said, we don't need three Christmas Eve masses. So it's just me. Yeah. And they're back to back to back. Like, it's not really much of a break in between. I said, they're like, it's just four hours of work or it's four and a half hours of work. I'm no. like, no, no. I could, the amount of energy it takes to do this, to actually pray this, to put my whole self into this is more than it'll take an eight hour shift at work or whatever. Yeah. And I said, it's not just that there's all the prep that comes up before the mass. There's all this, there's everything that comes after it. And I'm like, it's too much. And if there's not enough people coming, there is literally no point in doing this. Mm -hmm. If you want less priests in the church, ask them to do more masses because (laughs) that will be a great way to achieve it. Mm -hmm. The mass is something, it is a privileged thing and it is a great gift that we have but the church has a wisdom to her laws. Yes. Bishops like, but the thing is like in our diocese, like the dispensation for Sunday mass is how many we can say really is not to exceed three. Yeah. And I think there's a real wisdom there and Mm -hmm. you have to ask the Bishop if you want to do more. Yeah. Like uh, our Bishop, he's at uh, one of the other parishes. They used to have a Saturday night mass, uh, two Sunday morning masses, a, a mission mass, and then a Sunday evening mass. And they had 660 people coming in total to that parish. I'm like, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. So yeah. he's brought it down to two. And people complain, but I'm like, this is stupid. Because we treat we we're treating the mass like it's uh, <laughs> like it's a Wendy's, mm. like it's a business. If you want to get more business, you have to be open more hours. Mm-hmm. And that's not what mass is about. No. And there needs to be a sacrifice of everyone's time too. That. Yeah. You know, if masses is, is this incredibly convenient thing offered at all hours of the day, that's going to cause a problem too, because then you can fit mass into your day instead of centering yeah. your day around had, mass. And I've that's a some, huge difference. I've had some people ask for a Sunday evening mass, and I, and my, my standard line is, when I see you fr- regularly at Sunday mass period, mm-hmm. then I'll consider it. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. And also, right. also, just on a personal note, Sunday evening masses are the absolute worst. Yes, they are. I, yes, I don't know if I could, I can, oh man, man, I don't know if I well, quit, but like people, if they, if they show up, they look yeah. exhausted, like they don't want to be there. It's incredibly hard to get altar servers and yeah. ministers for that Sunday evening mass. Yeah. Um, they rarely show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it's it, it was it's just a miserable experience of the liturgy every time mm-hmm. I've had an evening mass. Um, and I mean, I, it's maybe a little selfishness on my part, but like my a lot of my friends live in Victoria, which is two and a half hours away. So if I want to get down there on my day of rest to hang out with them and to rest with my friends, yeah, I usually need to leave on Sunday. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, like I listen. If there was a sudden demand, if I finally found like there are two hundred parishioners who want to come to mass every Sunday night, I will do that. I will yeah, make that sacrifice. Sure. But I need to see results to make it worth it, worth the while. Yeah. The point, maybe to wrap <laughs> this up, the point of yeah. the Good Father's uh, tweet was that it can't be just out of convenience. Yes. If there's a need, hey, if there's a need, we'll do it. Yes. Every priest will say this. If there is an actual need. We'll sacrifice for it, and we're happy to do so. But this pure convenience thing, that has to end. Um, Because, you know, in my diocese right now, in more and more places, we don't have room for convenience. We have parishes without priests. Yeah. Like, actual parishes without priests. Mm -hmm. These are still parishes that would be, are open and everything, but they have no priest. Right. Or they have no pastor or something. Mm -hmm. It's, It's that bad. All right. Let's lighten it up again a little bit here. Okay. Um, from Mrs. Ruvi at Katie Ruvalcaba. Mm-hmm. Uh, kids and I were in the car talking about being Christ's hands and feet on earth. Merritt asks, are we Jesus's legs? We sure are, buddy. Millie says, are we his arms? Yep. Merritt, are we his butt? You bet. <laughs> I was blessed to be Christ's butt on earth today. <laughs> And I just love that because that is the quintessential child question. It is. Like they, they they push it to they push it to its logical extreme. And yes, we are Christ's body. And uh yes, we you know it's Okay, yes, wait, wait, hold on, yes, hold on. Hold on, hold on. This, yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, okay. Yes. Yes, go ahead. Okay. Okay. So the body of Christ metaphor is indeed more than the metaphor. There's a deep spiritual yeah. reality to it. Mm-hmm. But it's also kind of a metaphor at the same time. Yes. And exactly. that metaphor can be pushed a little bit too far. And I'll say this, like sometimes you I mean it's a very common joke that like, oh, if if I'm part of the body of Christ and I'm like a hangnail or something like that, it's like ah ha ha whatever. But you don't wanna uh how do I wanna put this? Um Every part of the body has dignity. And St. Yeah. Paul talks about this a little bit as well, right? Uh, yeah. um, but at the same time, I'm not going to encourage people. There's something about that. I just don't like this. I don't I like know. this, Father Harrison. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I don't blame the but kids at all. No, but no, I don't no. want to encourage but, us saying well, that we're certain parts saying. of Christ's body. No, we're not because we are literally his whole body. I, I mean, Paul uses the analogy of members because yeah. we are all members of the body. But baptism makes us the whole body of Christ, mm. right? And the whole church is the whole body of Christ. And that different members relate to each other differently. However, I'm going to push this a little bit. Okay. Just a little. Okay. Because I think it was the first reading today. Mm-hmm. About, and this is my way of justifying saying the word ass. Because yes. uh, often they talk about writing an ass yes. in scripture. And Correct. that was, I think it was today's scriptures. I think it was the first reading or was a it? psalm or something. Okay. Or yesterday. It was one that, yesterday or today. I remember hearing it. Okay. You know, and sometimes the body of Christ, we just make an ass of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so there you go. We are Christ. <laughs> okay. Uh, That's all. I, I know. I, I've given my I know, protest. I've I know. Given my protest. I know. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm having a little, folks, we can have a little fun. Okay. We can have a little fun. 
Okay, let's do. Uh, wait, are we doing one more? Or are we done? We're done. We're done. We? Yeah, we're done. Excellent. Patreon. Patreon. Okay. <laughs> now it's time. Speaking for... of making a butt of yourself. Hey. Hey, we're the butt of all jokes. Hey. Patreon pontifications. <laughs> Patreon pontifications. You support us. We read your tweets. Uh, uh, you know what? You know what the internet calls that last tweet? What? They call it cringe. That was cringe. Okay. It was funny. Kids are awesome. You kids know? are I great. Just like, that, I just, yeah, kids just know how to ask the fun questions and to have some fun with it. Okay. And we can have a childlike heart like that. Sign for Patreon pontifications. Please consider donating to our Patreon. Money goes to paying for equipment and podcast hosting fees, as well as paying producer Nick a just wage for all the work he does. Any money collected that goes beyond that will be donated to the missionaries of charity. Go to patreon.com slash clerically speaking to have a chance at having your chosen tweet talked about on the podcast. And this week's tweet comes from Sanctum Officium at Black Guelph. I don't know how to pronounce your Twitter handle. It's a weird one. Okay, but he he chose a tweet from Woke Space Jesuit. Uh-oh. And it's a quote tweet. So, Woke Space Jesuit is asking, is this supposed to be an anti-religion comment? And he's picking a tweet from uh, this person who says, if you need religion to be a good person, then you're not a good person to begin with. Smiley face. And what did... And what did uh Woke space say again? Is this supposed to be an anti-religion comment? Oh, I see. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, you go first. I really just want to talk about this 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 ridiculous thing. If you need religion, yeah, to be a good person, then you're not a good person to begin with. Well, no, that's actually like the gospel. No one's a good person. Well, here's to the begin thing. Here's with. the thing. All these things that we understand as being a good person. Loving the marginalized, the poor, yeah. doing good unto others for its own sake. These are religious values from mm-hmm. Christianity. Mm-hmm. In the ancient world, you would not have found these values. No, they'd throw infants on the, in the Tiber. Right. If they didn't want them. Exactly. And even like even if emperors gave out like um like the Roman emperors would give out this, you know, grain allotment to the Rome to the Roman citizens, it wasn't because being poor was good and they deserved grain. It was a tool to control mm-hmm. the masses. Mm-hmm. This was not the idea of doing good because the poor have inherent dignity. That's not a real thing. In fact, yeah. too much charity in ancient world would have been looked down upon because why are you wasting that? They don't deserve that. There are right. different classes of people. So all the, like the, the secular world, how they prop themselves up sometimes and say, oh, you don't need religion to be a good person. The reason why you think these things are good is because of our Christian religion. And there's still the last fumes of our religion in the gas tank of our culture. And we and forget they that. Are go- and they're gassing out pretty quickly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's fumes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because like I, you know, you can talk to people and, you know, they'll talk about serving the poor and... They'll just say they're not grateful enough for what we do for them and serving them in soup kitchen. And I'm like, and they'll say, you know, they, yeah. they don't work like I work. I'm like, yeah. So, and so they don't think that they are, they deserve right. what they have. And I'm like, so like that idea of dignity of the poor is already going away. It is. It is. Or, you know, I've you know, gotten the comment before like, oh, father, when Jesus was talking about the poor, they don't, he was talking about a different kind of poor than our poor. It's like, whoa, whoa, right. whoa, 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 settle down. This, yeah. this isn't, you're missing the point of this charity. And Not if you really Jesus believe. said the poor you'll have with you always. Right. Right. Um, but <laughs> this idea that you, we only help the deserving, that's, thank God. That's, 
that yeah. God doesn't treat us like that. Exactly. I think this is, this, this, this is a pride. Um, this yep. is a hubris, th- these yep. ideas, because we deserve nothing. Nothing we've ever done has earned us any bit of grace. Right. It is and not the fact that God loves us first. And to add to this, yeah. you first, why do you... It's interesting that they lump all religion under the rubric of being being a do-gooder. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, Buddhism doesn't actually... I mean, it cares about virtuous and good deeds, but yes. really it actually doesn't. It cares about self-annihilation. Mm-hmm. Um, destroying the self by destroying desire. Mm. Um, Islam doesn't really care about that at all it cares about the five pillars and that's it that's all you need to do to be a good muslim mm-hmm. um is um judaism ha- has yes its teachings but they're within the people of the covenant and they have some stuff for aliens and stuff like that outside the covenant but that's it i mean like so this idea that religion's about like giving you a moral underpinning that's also just an ignorant phrase because a lot of religions don't care about formulating a mm-hmm. moral underpinning right and you know if you are okay fine so if you want to say well christianity i'm like well but christianity actually says the opposite it actually says no you're a bad person and <laughs> yeah. so you need grace <laughs> right to get away from that yeah this is tough this is something that maybe we want to do in another episode but the the difficulty in understanding christian doctrine in light of certain psychological understandings of the human person Mm-hmm. Uh, because without God, we're nothing. And so if you read a lot of the saints, uh, nothing isn't a very useful term. It's not very poetic. It's not a good mm-hmm. metaphor you can use to understand stuff. So they'll say, you know, without God, you're like a slug. You're a piece of dirt. You're garbage. And if you were to read that purely psychologically, you're like, oh, this is not a healthy person. There's no understanding right. of something. So a lot of times I think we get confused with these things that are talking about different aspects of the human person. Mm-hmm. I think that might, we need to do an episode on grace is what we need to do. Yeah. That'd be a good, that'd be a good one. Yes. Yes. Mm. I have, I have some reading I can give you. Ooh. All right. <laughs> Speaking of reading. Yes. Yes. I'm so excited because, because it was fun to bring it back, but we need to keep bringing it back. The yes. best bumper that we have. And today's third section of our podcast, it's time for The Index. Oh no, it's finally here. The Index! Not my books! Not my books! When The Index comes to town, we take your books and we burn them! Index was a list of books once forbidden by the Roman Catholic Church as dangerous to the faith or morals of Catholics. Our index is where we talk about a book and decide whether or not it would have made that list. Mm-hmm. And today's I'm book, I'm excited, is a book that I'm so excited. Maybe you've heard about just in if you like if you're around Christian circles long enough, you'll hear this phrase even if you haven't read the book. I think and the book is called Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And it's by Joseph Pieper. And we've mentioned it a bit on the podcast. Right. That's one of the things. Yes. I feel like it's in the, it's in kind of the subconscious of a lot of just, I don't know, Christian groups and stuff. Uh, and, and I'll just throw this out quickly. Like, yeah. 
So wait, have you have is this your first time reading it? It's my first time actually reading it. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like it's one of those wow. things like so like guys like, talked about in the this, seminary, guys read yeah. it in the seminary. This I, is like a this is a uh oh what's the wrong for? This is like a highlight of your life moment. It's a big deal. This is a big deal. This book literally changes lives. Um, here's the thing is, I think because I, the ideas have been around in my formation before. Gotcha. Um, like this was actually, it was great. It was, it helped clarify yeah. some things and helped me think about some things about prayer, but it's kind of like, was kind of there beforehand, if that makes sense. Yeah. But it is like, even if you are, I think even if you're not, if you, even if you have not read a lot of philosophy, I think you mm-hmm. can read this. Yeah, it's a very accessible read. I think in some ways, I, I actually that's I will just say that that's actually Peeper in general. He has this ability. He's kind of like the Ratzinger of philosophy. He has Whoa. this ability to navigate complex, detailed thoughts. And yes, he gets into nuances and stuff sometimes, but he's able to do it with a clarity that if even if you're a noob, yeah, you can get it. Yeah. It seems like a lot of times if you're going to read some philosophy, you really need a background and a general idea of the history of philosophy. Yeah. For people, I don't think you need that. No. Um, it's, I think it'd be helpful, of course. There's some stuff, but I mean, right. like, it's this is the other thing. My thing to people is always when you're going to read a book, read it. Even if you're not going to understand all of it right away, that's okay. That's actually how you grow in knowledge and you stretch your mind more. So if you're not a philosopher and you think this book, what we say today might find of interest, pick up the book. Because clerically, clerically speaking, moves product. We yeah, move product. it's true. We do. We do. We move, we move product. <laughs> Ignatius Press is going to be starting to sponsor this show soon, probably. No, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, I, re- I just want to – the reason I say formative, that was the word I was like, this is a formative time for you then because yes. I read this book in 2009, and I, a friend recommended it to me. And so I ordered it. I was doing my CPE course in Toronto and I was on call on the Saturday. So I was sitting in the chaplaincy office with nothing to do because I wasn't getting any calls. And I literally teared through the entire book that afternoon. I couldn't put it down. Mm -hmm. And it just changed everything for me. Yeah. It helped me see the world in a new way Mm -hmm. that I never thought was possible. That's how big this book is to me. That's, I mean, that is what it is. It's, it's a, a new lens for the world. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's almost, it's, it's less of a lens. It's, you realize you've been wearing sunglasses your entire life. Yeah. And then it pulls it away a little bit. And I would say, I guess maybe it's, it's a way of justifying the Christian view of the world. Not yes. just, not just theologically, but specific. I, I would say this is the philosophical underpinning of a sacramental worldview. Yes. Absolutely it is. And so by, you're, so this is a a kind of natural, rational justification for what grace does for us through the sacramental life. I agree. Yeah. So let's okay, get sorry. into it. Yeah. No, I, it's good. I'm going to nerd out. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's good. We're, we're going to do a little <laughs> bit of philosophy in this one. It'll be good. Um, but yeah, it's. I mean, we say a book. It's an essay. It's like 60 pages long. Yeah. Um, and he, Joseph Pieper, he's writing this at the uh, after World War II. And he's talking about how the fact that, you know, in Germany, they are working on kind of rebuilding their house, their culture, mm-hmm. their the physical structure. Because um, not just the fact that war ravaged um, that area, but also just all the terrible, the change of culture and of ideas of mm-hmm. um, the Nazi party 
the way mm. it reshaped German identity uh, and culture. All this needs to be rebuilt now, right? Yeah. And, and he's also speaking um, from the German context of the Protestant work ethic, which is something he criticizes in the book, right? Max, uh, Max Weber's Protestant work ethic. Yes, he definitely does that, that too. That work is where your value is. Right. Right. And that leisure, rest, all these things are inherently un- inhuman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just a quote kind of like that starts his whole process of thinking. To build our house at this time implies not only securing survival, but also putting in order again our entire moral and intellectual heritage. And before any detailed plan along these lines can succeed, our new beginning, our refoundation, calls out immediately for a defense of leisure. I've been becoming more and more aware that Vatican II was not the cause of our problems. Correct. In the church. But that there was a spiritual um, vacuum in Western civilization following the war. And in a way, his quote there recognizes this vacuum. Yes. That's kind of huge for me. Sorry. I, yeah. No, it's absolutely I have, true. I, I have other ideas that, that this has nothing to do with, but this is like blowing my mind right now. So, sorry. I mean, because yeah. really, World War II was the culmination of, of, of a, a thousand different forces that were going wrong mm-hmm. uh, in, Western, in the Western world. And then World War II kind of brings that to light, and we see kind of the results of that and right. the emptiness that it brought about. Right. So, so he, like, what was going on in the 60s and 70s is really a fruit of, like, a spiritual nihilism that falls from the war. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying, he's recognizing this problem, he's saying... To do to do right as a civilization again, we need to refound our understanding of of, and I, I would almost wonder if he would see that the whole idea of work as it is in the West, is one of the underpinning motivations, even unconscious, towards the whole not Nazi nationalism movement. Oh, absolutely, yeah, I think so. So oh. okay, so let's Sorry. let's focus a little bit. No, that's good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what does what does society need to be reformed? Not necessarily plans, not necessarily, and definitely not like work, but a defense of what leisure is. Mm-hmm. So now, what is leisure? Yeah, when we think leisure, we think vacation time. If you think Woo-hoo! leisure, you think beach, right? Doing nothing. Leisure means nap times. Leisure mm-hmm. is if you're wealthy enough to get it. If you make enough money, then you don't have to do stuff. That's leisure. Right. Although he does say sleep is a kind of leisure. Yes. Right, right, right. <laughs> so I mean, not necessarily all of our concepts yeah, 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 of leisure yeah, yeah. are wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's, yeah. here's the thing. He talks about this world of total work. Yeah. And this is very much the world we live in. I can say definitely much for um, America, I assume, Canada uh, as well, mm-hmm. that we live in a world of total work. Mm-hmm. where the human being is a worker. That you work so you can be a productive member of society. That's the goal. And you take rest, you take vacations, so that you can go back to work. That's what our rests are. That's what our breaks are. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see this especially just in more you know popular culture about let's wake up and grind, let's get this bread. Mm-hmm. Work is the highest value that the human being can achieve. If you're a good worker, then you're a good person. And this shapes what we understand as our whole worldview. Because what he's really talking about in this book is what it means to be a human being. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and he and he addresses that in the first chapter, right? He says, mm-hmm. uh, uh, "Here in, in all that follows, worker must not be taken as defining an occupation, right. as in statistical works. It is not synonymous with proletarian." Although the fact that the words are interchangeable is significant. On the contrary, worker will be used in an anthropological sense. It implies a whole conception of man. Right? So he's saying, this is how we view the human person. Right. Like, that's what he, yeah, sorry. Just to justify or to back up what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. So basically, the, the, the worker as a human, pe- human being is outwardly directed. Mm-hmm. Uh, is focused on the active power of the human being. Mm-hmm. And there's this, I love this part that he talks about, an aimless readiness to suffer pain. Like, yeah. it's good to be disciplined. It's good to suffer pain just because that's good. Yeah. There's no purpose to it. Yeah. <laughs> Which doesn't that feel like that's a weird, um, that is like a virtue in our culture. Mm-hmm. That you just work because work is good. Yep. Mm-hmm. And not only that, you you work your full-time job and then you start doing these side jobs and you do these things outside of work to advance yourself. And it's like I, when I was reading this again, because this is my fifth time reading it, I think. <laughs> and it's been a few years, though. So um, I was like, I was like, it was just a lot of things are coming back. But I really noticed a real connection between how he presents the worker and what we would kind of call like progressivism today. Okay. Because how, how is the whole ideology of progress um, promoted through work, right? Innovation, like, like, think, of, like think of Silicon Valley, right? It, it's right. this idea, this constant competition in order to achieve results, in order to find new things and new ideas, in order to bring about new products. And it's just a vicious cycle that never stops because we never because there's always a way to do better than what has been done before mm-hmm. and so this i this you see like the progressive attitude that is so inherent in the in western culture is really it, that is not the anthropological vision it's actually this worker idea that he promotes in the book and that that progress is done by human power yeah what is different about leisure and what makes it human is that it stretches and pulls the human being into something higher than who he or she is. Mm-hmm. And the best way to understand this is what he talks about in the first chapter, this idea, uh, these two under two activities of the mind. So he talks about these two kind of ways of knowing. He talks about ratio. Uh, yeah. So good. Yeah, ratio, which is like this discursive reasoning. So this is like when you're taking apart an idea, dissecting it, when you're working to put it together. This kind of when two you're, plus two equals four. Exactly. Or even yeah. that that feeling when you're like you're you're studying something and you're like, leave me alone. I need to focus. Yeah. That feeling of when you go to school, you're going to do this like intellectual work. That's ratio. Right. And Rats, it's a, ratio. That, ratio. I, I'm saying that wrong. Ra- ratio. 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 There we go. Ratio. Yeah. Yeah. Like Ratzinger. Anyway, yes. so <laughs> Ratio. So, uh, and that's not a bad thing. That's definitely a work right. of the mind. You have to do yeah. that at times. Um, but that's one thing. And then he talks, he, he contrasts it with intellectus, oh. which is an intellective vision. 
So vision is a good metaphor for this. And this is like a kind of taking in of reality. It's a listening to the being of things. It's kind of receiving this gift. It's what you do when you're looking at a piece of art and you're just letting the beauty hit you. It's what you do when you walk into a church and you're not dissecting every pillar or every part of the mosaic. You're just letting the picture hit you. It's yeah. almost like you're being given this gift. It's what you do when you go out in nature and you're not thinking about um, the, the, the cells of the leaf or the processes of nature. You're just letting it hit you. Yeah. And it's almost like you're being pulled outside yourself because if you're experiencing the world as a gift, there's this implication that there is a gift giver. Right. So it's a human activity that kind of transcends humanity yeah it's i think and i think these two things have an analogous relationship to something in prayer i think okay. this is the difference between meditation and contemplation okay so um a lot of times we use meditation and contemplation in different ways and correct me if i'm wrong because sometimes i use it wrong uh as well but meditation is you're either taking uh, scripture or an image from scripture or the life of Christ or the life of the saints, and you're thinking about it. You're kind of pulling it apart. You're kind of bringing it to the Lord. What does this mean? What's going on here? Whereas contemplation is a more of you're letting the mystery hit you. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Is that yep. about right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're both good, but if all you do in prayer is work by your own powers, then it's not really prayer, it's just work. Yeah. I think this happens a lot in the spiritual life. Yes. We think and about I... going to prayer and automatically we already feel exhausted because mm -hmm. we're afraid of the work we have to do in prayer. I have to read, I have to meditate, I have to say my rosary, I have to stay there an hour. We've turned prayer into a work instead of this relationship with God, instead of letting him give us something. And in this way, sometimes I think we make an idol almost out of prayer, where prayer isn't good in and of itself. Prayer is this thing that I do. Does this make sense? Yeah. I think sometimes this happens with people who try to do the holy hour. Like if I if I prayed my holy hour, then God loves me. If I haven't prayed my holy hour, God does not love me. Right. If I've said my morning prayers, God loves me. If I have not said those morning prayers, God does not love me. Prayer isn't a relationship with God. It's not a connection with the divine. It's this magical formula we do to get grace. Yeah. We've turned which, prayer into a mechanism. Right, which is uh, paganism. Yes. This is babbling like the pagans do. This is what yeah. Christ means by it. Yeah. If I say the magic word, if I say the right name, then I I'll get the what right I want gestures, from God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So a few things. Like I remember the first time reading that distinction between ratio and intellectus and just my mind exploding <laughs> because it, I mean, there's, because really what, uh, what the medievals then would see as the reasonable side of the human being is actually not even necessary. I mean, he says that they're coterminous, that, uh, that they act at the same time, ratio and intellectus. Like they're not, you can't just, it's a distinction. It's not a separation. Yeah. But it's the intellectus that's really the reasoning element of man, actually. So, um, but what you're talking about there with regards to stuff around contemplation and stuff, this is where I think, and it's something I think we can readdress towards the end of, 
our discussion here as well. Um, I think this is we 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 want to do it, but we don't know how to because uh, we are so brought up in this anthropological vision that I am a worker that we don't know how to leisure properly. Yeah. And we don't know how to achieve leisure and we don't know how to receive and we don't. So, and I mean, it really, sorry, my brain is working faster than I can talk right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and because if you can't contemplate, then you can't receive the gift. If you can't receive the gift, then you can't acknowledge the gift giver. And so it starts to unveil that the anthropology of worker actually closes us off from seeing God. Yes. Right? And that's what it is. The the world of total work, I think he calls it demonic. He kind of like shyly calls it demonic, if I may. Good, it mm-hmm. is. It is. Because yeah. it makes life into a distraction. You work so that you can take, so that, because work is for either for the state or for the society, for progress, yeah. for these sort of vague notions. They do that, and then you're exhausted, so you take breaks. And yeah. what do we do in those breaks? We binge Netflix, we play video games, yeah. we um, party until we're, we black out to distract ourselves. So both the work and the quote-unquote rest distracts us from anything beyond the purely human. Yeah. And not just that, he will talk about how breaks and rest and vacation is actually part of the whole structure of work. Yeah, that's what it right? is. It's, it's for right. work's sake. It's, yeah, so you can be rested to go back to work. Exactly. Which is such a drudgery, right? And now, just as a little aside, he doesn't he doesn't say, like, servile work is bad. No, not at all. He says it has its place, obviously, in the world. Like, you need to have it. and But um, but we've allowed it to just... And, and like you see it, for example, in the universities, too, right? Mm-hmm. What is what is getting prominence now? STEM, right? Which is all ratio, which is all uh, discursive reasoning, which is all um, the activity of man, and the pushing aside of humanities, yeah. which is contemplation, the the liberal arts, and it, like they're called liberal for a reason because they literally free you because they help you understand man as it as you really are as a human being. Right. Um, that's the whole point of pursuing them. There is uh, there is no practice fruit they're useful because they're useless you're right right and just as a little aside i i, I actually i think that this uh, this whole book in a way underpins ratzinger's regensburg lecture about the university uh because he's uh he talks about that in here right this idea that when we mm-hmm. start pushing the liberal arts aside we actually aren't a university properly so-called anymore and what does Ratzinger talk about in Regensburg? He's trying to reassert the primacy and importance of theology within the context of the university because right. it's contemplation, because it's about first things, right? Sorry, I'm going all over the place. No. This is like so freaking cool. But this ju- book yeah. is freaking amazing. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. The problem is the university has been pulled into the world of total work. Exactly. Especially in the West, everyone has to go to college. Everyone. Yeah. In order to get a job, you have to have that piece of paper. So college... It sort of becomes for the sake of work. Yeah. And if college yes. is going to be for the sake of work, then the humanities become less and less important. Because if you're going to pull, take a loan out to learn philosophy, that's going to be that's going to be a waste. Because college in the world of total work is a trade school. It's not a college, basically. Well, yeah, no, no, and that's university is a trade school now. 
It is, exactly. So that's why, because some people will say like, oh, you know, Father Harrison, you're telling people, or Father Anthony, you're telling people that they should learn the humanities and philosophy when they go to college, but isn't that a waste? Well, it's no. because we've changed what college is. Yeah. We, we've, it's been pulled into the world of total work, where it's no longer this place for contemplation or becoming more human. Now mm-hmm. it's this thing you have to spend so much money on, it becomes a trade school. It's a different you know, well, so much money on in the U.S. Right. <laughs> well, that's what I think. Mean, what people like <laughs> for our listeners in the one country that matters in the world, when they hear us talk about college, that's what's going to be foremost in their minds. You see, Canada's useless, which means we're truly leisurely. <laughs> True. So, like the like people can't can't go to college right, um, right. for to become more human. They become yeah. to college, enter into the world of total yeah. work, and that's that's a problem. And I remember when I was going to university, and I was ended up my last where I ended up was philosophy in the end. After it was my third program, and I remember constantly. I, I mean, I didn't have Peeper at the time, but I had this intuition. And people were saying, "What are you going to do with philosophy?" I said, "Nothing." That's the point. Yeah, and I didn't have Peeper's intuition. But it's like that was my or, or, or description, but that was my intuition at the time. It's like, no, it's worth knowing for its own sake. And I think that's kind of his thing. It's about learning to love and to know and to do things for their own sake. Um, so leisure is about, um, is about choosing the good and choosing it, whether it's practical or not. It's about choosing the good. Um, I don't know where you're going to go next. I do want to talk about the Acedia thing at some point. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to talk about Acedia. So do you want to talk about that then? Yeah, sure. Okay, I might as well since I kind of just unnaturally segway into it. Segway. Transition. Yeah, this is the thing, right? So leisure is really about choosing the good. The good for its own sake and being imbued and recognizing the good in your own sake. And so when I was rereading this, I forgot that he has this whole section on acedia, which, as you folks know, is a kind of pet topic of mine. Mm-hmm. And he uh, and he actually goes on to talk about how acedia in the Middle Ages uh, was seen as like um, leisurelessness, <laughs> like it's without leisure. Yes. Even though you might not be doing anything, it's without leisure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it would be the sitting in front of YouTube for five hours today or whatever. That's that's not leisure. Yeah. That's actually a sedia. Yeah. And he actually goes on to talk about how the medievals would see it as this workaholism. Um, but he says this, and I think this is the heart of it because this is why he's bringing it up here. Metaphysically and theologically, the notion of a sedia means that a man does not in the last resort give the consent of his will to his own being that beneath the dynamic activity of his existence he is still not at one with himself that as the medieval middle ages expressed it sadness overwhelms him when he is confronted with the divine goodness imminent in himself that's his idea acedia it's about not recognizing the good and not and not choosing it, right? It, he, he says to give consent of his will. That's the choice mm-hmm. uh, to his own being. Well, that's good. That's what God has declared to be good. So it's this inability to desire and choose the good. And leisure, in its proper sense, says your life is good. Your being is good. The whole of creation is good for its own sake. Yeah. And there is nothing practical to that. There is nothing useful to that. It's And this is like, in a way, if you want to know what leisure looks like, look at a child running around a playground. Play and leisure are very closely right. connected, I exactly. think. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I, I, that's all I'll say about the Acedia thing, but um, 
there's a lot there. It's just really cool. Read yeah. the book, folks. Well, Read I think the, the, the CD example, um, it's different than a kind of um, laziness. Yeah. So um, for me, the, like, oh. the, the image of a CDA, for me personally, is not wanting to get out of bed in the morning. Right. If I have nothing yeah. to do, like my day off, I've got nothing to do. You know, it's, yeah. it's, I think it's okay to sleep in a reasonable amount, but there's mm-hmm. that thing that we experience of where we just kind of stay in bed, not really being awake, not yep. really being asleep, not getting up, and it's not restful. The kind of hitting your snooze button like 12 times isn't a restful thing. It's, and so the, the opposite of that acedia isn't necessarily waking up right away and going to your job. The kind of opposite of that is waking up and being alive in who you are, being a mm-hmm. human being. Mm-hmm. So the reason why I get up is not just because I have work, it's because to be awake to participate in the world is a good human thing to do. So for me, getting up and praying, that's mm-hmm. not you know me getting up and going to work because that's not going to contribute to society or mm-hmm. to the nation state if I get up and pray. It's becoming more human. So it's that kind of energy to be who you are that yeah. is the opposite of a CDA. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I just noticed that you had this all in your notes here. Sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay, because um, we're not going to get to everything in this book, because we're already no. running a little late. So. Right, yeah. But it, and I think um, the when you're talking about like the prayer thing, like that's not work. And I think this is the heart of what leisure should be. Yeah. Is um, I, th- I think if we're really honest with ourselves, most of us do not look at prayer as something restful. Yes. We see it as a drudgery, a duty of the day, whatever it is. And I'm not saying like, do it. That's going to be part of it sometimes. And sometimes you just got to kind of plow through that because you got to work through that yourself. Sometimes just pure discipline is an act of love. Right. But as you take leisure as like your worldview, um, you start to see this is the only way to be is in prayer and in contemplation. Now, it's true. Um, some people will not. Um, be able to do that um, extensively because of their state in life. Like if you're married, you're working a job, etc. You're not going to be able to. You can't spend five hours in contemplation while your kids are screaming for dinner, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and he kind of and like this is something the Greeks kind of understood. There is a servile class and there is a leisurely class, but they're there for the sake of each other in a way. That the servile class, like I mean, I've, I think I might have said this before. Like in a way, the priestly the priesthood is a leisurely class. Not in the sense of laziness or anything, but that we exist to pray. Mm-hmm. And we are able to do this because the people who have to live with the servile tasks of life through work and business, etc., are able to pay so that priests can be set aside to pray. Right? That yeah. they can support the priests, the parish, etc. So that and so that they have access to these sacraments and, and stuff themselves. The priesthood is really a leisurely class. It is set aside for prayer, which kind of like it gets me to what we were kind of talking a little bit about earlier was this idea that, you know, maybe I, I think in a way we've allowed this workaholism and the priesthood to really kind of take this take its toll on us. And we're really we exist for one purpose, to offer sacrifice and to pray. Mm-hmm. That's it. That is what we're here for. And all the other busyness that we tend to put around in our life as priests, I think, is witnesses to an anthropology that undermines the priesthood. Yeah. Well, it undermines 
Yes, the priesthood and and just the human being. So yes. if if leisure is what both pulls us out of ourselves, yeah, and makes us fully human, mm-hmm. a a consequence of that is that the priests can then teach and help other people to enter into leisure, to enter into prayer, yeah. to become more human. He doesn't do he doesn't pray for that sake. Right. Because remember this 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 becoming human, this idea of leisure, you don't do it for another sake other than the fact that it's good, mm-hmm. but it does have this consequence. But you see what happens to a priest who becomes a slave to the world of total work. Mm-hmm. They become yeah. less human. This is, you know, everyone, I think, unfortunately, everyone has that experience of a priest who's like, wow, you're just bad at being a human being. Mm -hmm. Or even, like, to the extreme extent, the scandals. Mm -hmm. If you've abandoned prayer, if you abandon this true leisure, if everything has become work, if the mass has become a job, if, uh, if prayer is simply work, then you're going to lose your connection with God, and then scandal will eventually fall out of that. Yeah. It's the first steps. Yeah. That's how it is. So priests really should be the best at being human beings by entering in and understanding this idea of leisure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. There's so much to say. Um, and the saints too. So here's the thing. Leisure mm-hmm. isn't so much an activity as it is, I think. Yes, there are activities in a sense, but it's kind of, I think what people are talking about, it's a, it's a kind of way of being. Yeah. So yes. So no, you can't maybe have a holy hour every day, but you can turn off the podcasts <laughs> and the music in your car. I know yeah. it's kind of funny saying this because we're on a podcast, um, and let yourself enter into prayer and be pulled out yeah. of yourself. You can. Your your raising of your kids is not just a work, mm-hmm. but by it's a school of leisure. Yeah. Um, like uh, the, one of the reasons why we 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 like Twitter or Instagram is because we see sometimes you see other families and like they have these fun stories about their kids. Something yeah. about that, yeah, is kind of a meditation or a contemplation of of childhood, which is a good thing. Yeah. So there's a yeah. different way of entering into that as a parent or as a single person. Falling in love with someone is, in a sense, this kind of leisurely activity. You don't love someone so that you can get married. Yeah. Um, that would be a weird way of, that's a weird way of dating. So, you, you, yes, you date um, with you know, marriage in mind, but you're not like trying to grab yourself a wife. You see how that's different? It's a different yeah. thing. Like yeah. you're loving and giving yourself to this other person because they are good. You're yeah, giving exactly. yourself in marriage to them because they're good. That's it. You're not trying yeah. to get a wife. Those are yeah, exactly. different ways of, that's yeah. a working way of dating versus uh, a contemplative leisurely way of dating. Yeah. So there's, it's, it's a mode of being. It's a way of being human. That's what real leisure is. And I think, you know, um, we are always, we're probably even, some of you might be even screaming in the car, okay, great, how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? It's not the right question to ask. So shut up. <laughs> and I get it. But no, it is you're frustrating, asking, yeah. But, but, and I get the frustration too because the reason you're asking and screaming that question is because we have been built up in the anthropology of worker. Mm-hmm. And so um, we need to find, and I, maybe that's something we can address at the end here, because I think he, he starts to address this. I mean, when I first read the end of the book or the end of the essay, I was caught off guard. I did not expect him to suddenly say essentially that um, 
the only way to be leisurely is through divine worship. Yeah. And then I was like, uh, what? <laughs> but then I, but you realize that it's a surprise conclusion in a way, but it makes total sense. And it's the only reasonable conclusion based on everything he's talked about so far. Right. Um, can I read a couple quotes? You can. You can. Okay. You're, you're we looking. Do, we, okay. We do have to get this podcast to Nick before nine o'clock. Okay. We got five minutes. Okay. All right. The soul of leisure, it can be said, lies in celebration. Celebration is the point at which the three elements of leisure come to focus, which is really important here because it gives us a sense of this is what leisure is. Relaxation, effortlessness, and superiority of active leisure to all functions. But if celebration is the core of leisure, then leisure can only be made possible and justifiable on the same basis as the celebration of a festival. And that basis is divine worship. And then he goes on to say, and it's just so brilliant, this point right here. When we don't have divine worship, the vacancy left by the absence of worship is filled by mere killing of time mm -hmm. and by boredom, which is directly related to the inability to enjoy leisure. For one can only be bored if the spiritual power to be leisurely has been lost. And so if you want to know how do we become a leisurely people, what is the five-step process? Go to Mass. Yeah. Make the liturgical calendar. It, 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 go back and listen to our podcast about the sacr sacramental worldview mm -hmm. in a way because and that the, is the yeah. secret. And last, last week's too, the whole um, – I yeah, think the the, 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 the the liturgical calendar exactly. is about festiv festivity right. and festival, and that's directly related and to leisure. Encourage your help your priests to find ways to celebrate uh, the major feasts. Um, like I saw some Eucharistic procession photos where there's the procession, and there are people with bongos and everything, and I'm like, <laughs> and yeah. it's amazing, and that is what it's supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. So find ways to encourage this in your home and in your parish. And because here's the thing, like these are things we really enjoy at the heart. The most cherished memories of life are not how often we spent in the office, not how much money we made, not the successful business ventures we had, but the communion of persons that came over a meal, that encounter with a person through the celebration of a big festivity at mass and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And if you find yourself bored in life, then make worship a priority in your life because that it'll awaken the desire for something more. And it will, because he says you cannot be bored if you have a proper sense of leisure in your life. The saints are never bored. Exactly. Well, um, I oh. think it's uh, not going to be a surprising conclusion, but is Joseph Pieper's leisure the basis of culture on the index? It is not. No. It I is think, not on the index. I think we would venture to say this is maybe essential reading for the Christian. I think so. I think it. this conversation has uh, opened up even more ideas in my head about how important this book is. Yeah. And there's a lot more to it. It's a dense book. Yeah. Um, but if you're like, okay, this sounds kind of good, but I'm not sure I get it yet. That's okay. Go yeah. get the book. There is so much, as you can tell, there's a, so much to say here that we, it's like, spitting out a fire hose really to you all uh, um, and we just we had to get something out but yeah goes directly to the source exactly okay well 
Thanks for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. You can find me at Father Sharapa on Twitter. You can find me at Fr Harrison. Contact the podcast and receive updates at Clerical Pod on Twitter or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. And one note about that yes, we are very behind on our emails and on our DMs. We haven't forgotten you, Patreon people. We have the stickers. We just need to get them to you. We're going to try harder to do those things. Thank you for your patience. Yes. You're all and lovely, also, wonderful people. Like us on Facebook. Oh, yeah, we're on Facebook now, too. Yes, we are. So, uh, yeah. God bless. Peace.